Good morning and welcome. We're continuing in our Advent uh, preaching, and we are in Isaiah chapter 61. Uh, This morning we'll be doing the entirety of the chapter, which is 11 verses. Uh, When I read uh, the chapter out loud, uh, at the conclusion of the reading, I'll give you an opportunity to pray uh, in silence, uh, a perfect time to repent of any unconfessed sin, also a time to just beseech the Holy Spirit to um, illuminate your mind to the truth of the Word. And as we are here during this time of Advent, we are here celebrating the incarnation of Christ. After that time of silent prayer, I will pray for us corporately, and then we'll enter into the time of the Word. Turning now and reading from Isaiah 61 in its entirety. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness." the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For the Lord, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. This is the word of God. Please take this time to pray.
Heavenly Father, the church gathers here on the Lord's Day to celebrate the resurrection of the Son of God. We come to rejoice in the salvation purchased by the blood of Christ our Savior. Now we now, the elect of God, the saints, the church, are inheritors of a grand destiny of a marvelous home that we did not work for, that we did not earn. We have gained solely through the good pleasure of God. May we, your people, this morning come with hearts that acknowledge the truth of our own idolatry. That while at all times being saints, redeemed by the power of the Holy Spirit, the gospel of Jesus Christ, being renewed in our hearts and our minds, yet we see another law at work in ourselves and our sinful flesh. Until the resurrection of the dead, we remain sinful and at the same time redeemed. Lord, strengthen your church as we groan towards the new creation. As I pray, the Spirit moves us to consider and look forward to the return of Christ. But until such a time, strengthen us through your word, through the power of the Spirit, and our shared communion of that spirit that we have with one another. And Lord, here as we celebrate Advent, we celebrate the incarnation of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, that in salvation history, the one who created all things came down to begin a new creation. And Lord, may those here then be strengthened, edified, comforted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those outside of the faith that are here, may they be confronted by their own sinfulness. May they be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And more than anything, may your name be glorified in our midst in our continued public worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Eleven verses in Isaiah. Anyone who was listening to me this week that I talked to knew that when I wrote this down as the preaching this week, I thought, this is excellent. And this week while I prepared, I thought, what was I thinking? So, What makes this passage great, though, although there is a lot, is it's very easy to actually break up the major sections, which is how I'm going to approach it. So what makes 61 unique among a few other chapters 
is 61 changes who is speaking. So Isaiah had a very unique way of writing of all of the prophets. Within chapters, he would have certain unknown speakers speak. And then at times he would make it very obvious that he, Isaiah, was then adding commentary or speaking. And then at other times, there seems almost an anonymous other person that's speaking as well. And it's very, very specific throughout the entire book. And in this passage, 61, we have a unique individual speaking uh, for the first nine verses. And then it's going to switch in 10 and 11 to a different speaker. But this speaker here is identified by the first marker of the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And so this is used only a few times in Isaiah. It's in 11, it's in 42, it's in 49, and it's in 50. And the identity of this unique speaker is made clear by Christ himself in the gospel according to Luke, which we'll read in a little bit. I'm going to give you a spoiler alert. This is a messianic passage. This is the long-awaited one. And see, in chapter 60, everything that's talked about is the future blessings of Zion. And of course, Israel at this time, as Bo covered last week, so I won't go over it again, is that simply that the people have been rebelling for centuries. God punishes them through foreign nations and there's ruin, and there's future discipline that they haven't even received yet, but that they will receive, that they've already been told about, yet smattered throughout this same book, starting in 11 and going forward in 40 and 50. Of course, 53 is very, very famous. And then here in the latter portions, there's this individual who's both unique in power as they're equal or equated to Yahweh, who's continuously pointed to as a reigning king, as a child, as a suffering servant, and here as the ultimate redeeming rescuer. And so as we're looking in 60, or as you're reading it in continuity in the book itself, it's looking forward to this time of some future restoration. <clears throat> so I'm going to, for, for our time's sake and the amount of verses we have, take large chunks, kind of make a few points, but I also want to tell you a few things that this passage, unfortunately, what people will do with it, that takes away from the majesty. Number one, if you take this passage and you simply say, well, this is about the rebuilding of temple after they return from exile in Ezra and Nehemiah. Maybe, except Jesus quotes it and says that it's being fulfilled in their midst. So while there's some central verses here in 61 that talk about ruin and rebuilding ruin and all these things, the predominant work of this mysterious figure isn't the actual rebuilding of anything. It's the release of all of these things that we'll read about today. He's coming to reverse things that have come because of sin. 
And so when we look at these passages, keep before you in mind at all times, this is a Christocentric reading, meaning the Old Testament, and I want you to forever understand this, the Old Testament is Christian scripture. Now, I never do this. And for guests, I apologize. Unless you like this, in which you're welcome. Repeat after me. The Old Testament is Christian scripture. I'll never put that through you for you that puts you through that, well, at least not anytime soon. And so the author of Hebrews, Peter in his epistles, Paul in his epistles, Jesus in his account to the apostles, and the, the, the witnesses after the resurrection and who he's going to talk to and revealing himself, and he's revealing the scriptures, he's telling them it's all about me. And so this mysterious individual is Messiah. And let's now look at his uniqueness. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening of the prison to the bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. It ends, it's one continuous expression to let you know who he is by what he will do. As I mentioned before, 11, 42, 49, 50, the spirit of the Lord of God is upon me as a, as a particular designation for this person. What made it unique is the anointing aspect of the spirit, meaning the spirit covered them like oil. This is unique in all of scripture and and throughout the history of Christianity has been interpreted principally and solely as Christ is this one who comes as Messiah. And the proof of this anointing or this covering of the spirit is at his baptism as well as the continuous works that he does in his ministry. I'm going to turn now to Luke. And you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it fast, but if you would like, that's fine. In chapter 4, now according to Luke in his gospel, before the, Jesus actually begins his ministry, he is confronted by Satan, and he has the temptation. And of course, we know he passes the temptation, and he begins his ministry. And he goes to, and we're looking here in 4.16, it says, Then he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom... He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, now consider all the elements here that you're about to hear. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and the found the place where it was written. Now, if you imagine for a moment, Jesus is coming into a place where he will describe here in a little bit, only in his hometown does a prophet find no honor. And yet he's asked to read the scroll of Isaiah. And he just happens to open it, right? It's like when you go, I don't know what I'm going to read in my Bible today. 
this has something for me rather than structure. And have, no, anyway, all of this is the sovereign hand of God as, as Messiah now in the midst of an unbelieving people who were supposed to be looking for him and yearning for him and being prepared for him by, by making a, a light on a hill. And he comes into their midst and he reads this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Does that sound familiar? It should. He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. The way that teaching took place was, was a reading and then a reclining. And then questions would be asked of the teacher and the teacher would answer the questions. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land, Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So if you don't understand what's happened, he's read this, sat down and said, now this has been fulfilled. And his emphasis is on since I've arrived and I've come before you, the day of the Lord's both, what we'll see later, the, the gratitude or graciousness has arrived. And their response is, oh yeah, prove it. We heard about what you did in Capernaum, that you did these acts, do them here. And then his answer is, well, you know, there was a lot of lepers but only one was healed. Only these, and if you're paying attention, during the time of Elijah, during the time of Elisha, only these Gentiles were healed. Only these outside of Israel were healed. What he's saying is, there'll, need, there'll be no miraculous works done to prove who I am. And I'm not going to read the rest, but they take Jesus and attempt to murder him. So, as he comes, thinking of this passage we just read, it's a passage of rescue and redemption. It's a passage of a promise long ago that God promised the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The one that we were waiting for, that they were supposed to be anticipating, that they had only thought of in terms of a, a physical king who would be strong enough to overthrow Rome or any army or any foreign nation that they would be subject to. And yet Jesus comes in their midst, the God-man, 
No recognition that, that it's not simply the seed of the woman, but by the spirit of God, only the God man would be able to do the work of Messiah. He comes in their midst. He reads the word of Isaiah, which is about him to the people and tells them it's happened today. This one is here. And they say, show us something cool to prove it. And then when he says, there'll be none done they attempt to murder him. If you have a problem understanding that, the heart of man, the effect of sin, needed to be crushed. He needed to be broken. This redeemer, this suffering servant, this one whom the spirit rested on. But now let's look at the work that he does. Brings good news to the poor. Bind up the broken heart. This is an amazing phrase in Hebrew. It It means no heart. The implication of that is that the, the effect in, of what's broken them, which is sin, has made it as if they have no heart. And so this one who has come is going to recreate their heart. The one who is broken by sin and poor and in ruin. This one, this Messiah, he will come and give them a new heart. This language is synonymous with other prophets as well. He's come to proclaim liberty to the captives, opening the prison for those who are bound. This is, this is seen as a way of, of, of language that has to do predominantly with, with someone who is literally in prison or a captive or a slave. But this is used by Christ and other apostles to show this is about true captivity, true slavery. And in true imprisonment of our very nature. Sin, so binding humanity, so breaking humanity to make, to make them to have a desire to worship anything but the one true God. This Messiah would come and deliver to them new hearts, release them from prison. Release them from bondage. All of these things, all of these things have to do with what Christ would do. When he goes before the synagogue and announces he's here today, and the work that he does afterwards is healing and teaching and feeding and all of these physical things that are that are at the moment, this person can now see, this person can now walk, the hungry are now fed. Those are all just showing a a tiny piece of the reality of why he's here. And and John, when he talks about he's the bread of life, you're going to never go hungry. Everyone that ate of the fish and the loaves, they were hungry again. Never hunger again. Never thirst again. This unique one. Messiah, who we've been waiting for, will break us out of our prison. 
release us from our captivity. And proclaim the Lord's favor in the day of the vengeance of our God, the year of the Lord's favor. This is another repeated term. The year can be translated in essence as a day. It's, it's not like there's a, uh, you know, like the year of Jubilee in, in essence, but it's like there'll be a day of God's favor or, or, or blessing as well as his vengeance on those who oppose him. To grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This is also very simple. In ancient Near Eastern times, to mourn, you would cover yourself in ashes. You would, if you were a man, you would shave your beard, shave your head. You would put on a, a, it was all outward representation that you were mourning over something, whether it was sin, whether it was a death, whether it was some other thing. Your mourning was to show everyone, I'm in mourning. Something grievous has happened. Therefore, I am showing everyone this place that I'm at so that you would know I'm in mourning. And so, Humanity lost, broken in sin is at all times grieving, grieving the loss. Now, when you're an unbeliever, it doesn't feel that way, but your lack of fellowship and ability to even have relationship with the one who created you, is in your in a state of constant mourning for the brokenness of that or the divorce of that relationship. It's as you are in a perpetual state of ashes and sackcloth. But this one, this redeemer, who by his work, particularly and especially his work on the cross, And through his blood and through his sacrifice, that creator and that creature who have no ability to have relationship with one another because one is unholy and the other is holy, the creator makes a way through the son for that creature to now be back in relationship with him. So those who are redeemed no longer are in mourning. And as as the the phrase, or as it continues comfort and you can just look at each one a beautiful crown it says headdress but a beautiful crown instead of ashes rather than mourning you're a part of the royal family a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit by the knowledge of what this one has done and he's going to do the sackcloth is taken off The ashes are removed. Oil is used to anoint you, to to show your gladness and that you're rejoicing in that. And look at all of this. This one, this Christ, this Messiah, this Redeemer, the one the long waited for, all of this, that they may be called what? Oaks of righteousness. The one whom he is being called to this deliverer will be called oaks of righteousness now 
Now, the, the Hebrew word is, is, has to do with the type of tree, but the translation is oaks of righteousness simply because it means strong, durable, impervious. God is going to make these ones who are defined by mourning and ashes and sackcloth and grief, and instead they're going to wear crowns and wear anointing oil and have clothes that resembles that of royalty, and they're now going to be called oaks of righteousness. All of those who come to Christ, who were once in all of these places, are made now symbols of God's glory, because that's what it says. They're made oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that what? He may be glorified. So in this work that this Messiah was going to do and now has done was always a display of God's mercy, of his grace, his redemption in order that people once more would be able to glorify him. When you were brought out of your ashes, your mourning, When you came to faith in Christ, whether it was as a mature individual or a child. This is the work that God did for you. In eternity past, this plan was made by the triune God whom we worship. No work of your own. No rigor that you could put towards it. God loved you before you were born. And did all this. And now you are the planting of God. Made durable and strong by the spirit, by God's own righteousness. So that until the time that you are rejoined with him and he completes his recreation of all things when he returns, you might stand firm. You who were once weak. Do you see it? When Jesus tells the synagogue, this is here before you today, they should have shouted hallelujah and celebrated He's finally arrived, but because of the darkness of the hearts of men, he was rejected. Verses 4 and 5 and 6 are generally kind of this idea of what will happen because of what he's done. Building up ancient roots, former devastations shall repair our ruined city, the devastation of many generations. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers. All of this has to do with what what will look like some type of future blessing as evidence that you have been called into out of this element of of ashes and gladness. That means ashes to gladness and, and all of these things. Many believe this has to do with the rebuilding of the temple during Ezra and Nehemiah. But as I mentioned earlier, Jesus is going to say that this has arrived now, not back then. And then he's going to call judgment on the temple, which will be destroyed. 
So the reality of this verse has more to do with the future, has more to do with Christ, has more to do with the church, has more to do with you and I. Moving to verse 6, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. Peter uses this analogy in his epistle. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. Hebrews uses this in three occasions. You shall eat the wealth of nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Again, talking about this blessing that will be received through this one, this one who is going to redeem and rescue his people. And then this is the one I wanted to rest on. We've talked often about the kingdom and the reality of being a kingdom recipient, one who will receive a place in this kingdom that Christ inaugurated in his incarnation and, and gradually through his ministry is, is picking those who are a part of it. You're with me. You follow me. You follow me. And the preaching goes out of the gospel. And the kingdom begins with Christ. And it's here now. Not in its full form, but as the church gathers together from the time of the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost until Christ returns, the kingdom is made evident in the midst of the fallen kingdom we still reside in, this world that is broken by sin, where disease and death reign still, and where Christianity is set apart from all other philosophies of life. Isn't that when we see death, we don't go, oh, it's the circle of life, just like, you know, the lion saying, no, it's not natural. We recognize death as unnatural. It's, the, it's, it's a harbinger of something that makes us groan and go, that's not the way it ought to be. It cries out from the heart of Christian teaching. Death is an example of what's wrong. It's not a part of just how things are. And that's what we're supposed to be crying out about. Violence, crime, what looks like the innocent going, um, just being ruined and the guilty just being, and the criminals being like, everything's just fine. Why is, is Job is crying out? Why do, do these things happen to the righteous and the unrighteous go on their way? All of these things that you see should make you go, yes, this world is broken. And there's only one rescuer. There's only one answer to this brokenness. It's not going to end here and now, but it started to end 2,000 years ago. And when we celebrate Advent, the momentous occasion of the Word made flesh, we can't lose sight of its place within redemptive history. Creation. Fall. Incarnation. Crucifixion. Resurrection. Ascension. Sending of the Spirit. The establishing of the church. 
the priesthood of all believers who will be called the priests of God, the ministers of the Lord who send out his word and share his gospel until the consummation when he returns in recognition of his glory and our total dependence on him. We are his flock. We are his ministers. And instead of your shame, this is inheritance. There shall be a double portion. They're no longer dishonor, but they will have a double portion at the end of seven and everlasting joy. This isn't about a singular time of temple being rebuilt in the 4th century B.C. Everlasting joy means everlasting joy. This is pointing to the inheritance that comes with the return of Christ and the recreation of all things. Well, he will call the nations to himself, all from every nation, who are those who are his, will partake in his kingdom. Skipping down to verse 9. The offspring shall be known among the nations, their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. This now mysterious speaker who Jesus introduces as himself in in Isaiah's story ends in another mysterious speaker now responds to what was just said. Generally in Isaiah, this is Isaiah himself, but also at times it seems anonymous. And I'll say here, no one knows when he does that. you, You guess if it's Isaiah or if it's someone else that's representing an individual who's responding to what this this one who, this unique one who's been mentioned in five chapters. And this is the response. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. What is this about? What does man need? What is the one who is broken, who is mourning, who is lost? What do they need? They need righteousness. And they don't even realize it's what they don't have. But what they need is righteousness. They need to be justified before God because they're guilty before God. And only one made this possible. Only the God-man. Only the second person of the Trinity. Only Christ, our Savior. Jesus of Nazareth. And through his death, And through his sacrifice and through his spilled blood, purchased and took on your curse and mine and all those who are called by his name. What's our response? I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. The inner person, everything that makes up the person in Hebrew, comes from this word soul. My soul, all of me, shall exult in my God. Why? 
Because now his eyes are open. Now who had no heart has a new heart. And because God has opened their eyes, transformed them, what is the response? Oh, I shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. Robes of righteousness. What do they need? Salvation. What are they missing? Righteousness. Who can give it to them? Only Christ. And it ends with beautiful language that is kind of a reflection of of many things. But as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The way this would have looked in in this time was all these descriptions of going from these things like ashes and mourning and all these things and then being transformed by putting, being washed, by having oil poured on them, by putting new clothes on. And now the analogy of those clothes being tied to righteousness itself as a robe and being clothed in it. And now as a bridegroom decks themselves. And so the the elaborate way in which a bride and a bridegroom would present themselves on their wedding with with kind of the best of all possible things, with jewelry and for her and and being adorned in the most beautiful clothes and he wearing the the most festive or, or most valuable robe and anointing himself in expensive oil and wearing a crown, just like that. Just like you see the physical way in which think of, of where you like to dress up. Think of your wedding day, if that makes sense, or prom or some other event where you're like, it's taken me a long time to look this way. It's kind of fake, but whatever. I look pretty good. Like that. Except there was no hair appointment. I'm obviously talking about the ladies. There's no hair appointment. There's no tuxedo rental. Matter of fact, there's no effort at all on their part. God said, mine. And like the most elaborate dress and presentation you can ever imagine of yourself, you can't even compare to being clothed in Christ's own righteousness. A robe he puts on you himself because he says, mine. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. That is you. That is me. That who all who call on the name of Christ understand unequivocally the work that God has done for you and in you going all the way back to the earlier verses so that his name might be glorified. So while you're here awaiting his return, be reminded 
Not of the old ways. Not of your mourning. Not of your sackcloth and ashes. Don't be drawn back to former things. Don't lie to yourself or let the devil lie to you where you go, that's where I belong. That's not where you belong. You want to know why? Because it has nothing to do with you. God said, nope, mine. You're his. Whatever value he sees in you is exponentially greater than you can imagine. When God looks on you, he sees his son's righteousness. That's the one. She's the one. He's the one. Called by his name and for his glory. This time of year, as we celebrate Advent, the word made flesh for this purpose of rescue, redemption, and predominantly to bring glory to God's name, may we be refreshed in the knowledge of all the work that God has wrought in our lives and in history and will culminate in his glory. And may we simply say, Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you for the salvation that you bring. Lord, may we, your people, may we be granted mercy when we doubt, when we fail, when we sin, or when somehow the world creeps in and weighs us down. Remind us of these verses. Remind us of Christ's testimony of himself. That the day of the Lord has arrived. And as the bridegroom and the bride adorn themselves, we have been adorned with his very own righteousness. The great redeemer and rescuer Christ. God, draw us closer to Christ. That we might look more and more like him and less and less like the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.